Well, I'm excited to talk with you a little more today uh, about the real Jesus. That's what we've been focusing on these last few weeks because so many of us have an idea of who he is. We've heard him talked about. Maybe we've been exposed to him at church. We've read things maybe in a college classroom. We were told certain things, but when you come to know the real Jesus, it, it transforms your life. And so we're going to be continuing that today, and you can prepare by going to our anchor passage, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but as you're going there, I just, again just wanted to welcome all of you here to Waterview. My name is Jason Bentley. I serve as the lead pastor, and it is a joy to have you today, and there's a few things that are coming up that I wanted to mention to you that I hope that you'll mark in your calendar so that you can be a part of it with us. Next Sunday is Child Dedication Weekend, and we're going to be dedicating children to the Lord, which is always a very special time. We love the next generation. We're all about the next generation, and so we're going to be presenting some children next Sunday, dedicating them to the Lord. And so if you would like to, to dedicate your child, you can register them just simply clicking on the link there in the digital worship guide in our app, or you can go to our website and do it as well. And then we've got Baptism Sunday coming up in a couple of weeks on Sunday, June the 11th. And we're just excited about some people wanting to take the plunge and be united with Jesus and baptism. Make sure that you sign up for that and start inviting your friends and family to be with you here for that special day. And then we, for the first time in our two-year history, we launched this church just two years ago. And since the beginning, we've been all about small groups as a church. We, we love the weekend. We love the big celebration on Sunday. But Really, the most important part of what we do as a church is done in small groups, and that's why small groups have been a big part of our church from the very beginning, and we've always had a spring semester of small groups, which is actually just now wrapping up. All of you that have been in small groups the last couple of months, you know that your groups are wrapping up, and then we've always had a semester in the fall, a fall semester of small groups, but this summer, we're actually going to be launching a summer semester of small groups with a limited number of options. And we want you to be aware of that because in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be opening those groups up to, for you to register, to be a part of them. It's going to be a fun summer, and we're excited about it. You can even go and start to browse the different groups by using our app, going to our website. The, the group directory is there. But we just want to make sure that you know all the different things that are happening because the summer can get us out of rhythm, can get us out of our routine. But of course, our faith, our relationship with Jesus, that's got to remain a priority in all of life's up and ups and downs. So make sure that you look into these different things that we have going on. But 1 Corinthians chapter number two has been our foundational text during this series on the real Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says this in verse number one, you'll remember, friends, that when I first came to you to let you in on God's sheer genius, that I didn't try to impress you with polished speeches and the latest philosophy. And I think even that is unique, how timeless and relevant that is even for this day and age. I mean, we're in the 21st century now, 
a couple thousand of years removed from this writing, and yet today the latest philosophy, the latest fad is still what's keeping us distracted and it's what's robbing us of what really our faith is all about, which is Jesus. Paul says, I deliberately kept it plain and simple. His whole ministry was all about, I want all eyes on Jesus. And that's our heart here. We want all eyes on Jesus. Jesus and who he is. That's the first and most important thing Paul says. Jesus, the real Jesus, who he is. And then Jesus and what he did, Jesus crucified. So over the last few weeks, we've talked about different aspects of the real Jesus. We're wanting to come to know the real Jesus, and we've learned about how he's the lamb, and we've learned about how his grace and mercy is greater than anything we could ever imagine. We've learned about how he's a healer and that he wants to heal us body, soul, and spirit. That whole is the goal when it comes to his healing power at work in our life. We learn that he's our, our shepherd. And today, I want to talk to us about how the real Jesus works miracles. Amen. The real Jesus works miracles. And really, we could stop here and close everything up and just agree together. We could all say amen together because I think deep down in our hearts, we know, we've heard it, we've talked to people, but we know in our hearts the real Jesus works miracles. Now, there are some who within the body of Christ even, they lean what is towards a belief system called cessationism, which is, is a belief system that says that miracles and signs and wonders and the supernatural works of God, that actually ended with the death of the apostles, with the death of the disciples. But here at our church, we, we do not take that position because we know and we see and we believe that Jesus Christ, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God that heals. He is a God that does supernatural wonders. He is a God that does miracles. It's just too good to not believe. He's too good to not believe. We've seen him do miraculous things in our lives. And so today, I, I'm not wanting to build the case necessarily that he does miracles. I want us to talk for a moment about some of the things surrounding the miraculous and, and then how we can respond and, and how we should align our expectations. But we see that Jesus launches his earthly ministry by doing a miracle. We see this in John chapter number 2. I want to direct your attention there. We're going to start with the first three verses, and then we're just going to kind of work our way down through this narrative. I want to just work our way down through this text because it, it says a lot. It's the very first miracle that Jesus does, and he launches his earthly ministry with a miracle. I think that's 
very important because it speaks very loudly to his character, speaks very loudly to his capability. But John 2 says this, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Maybe you're already familiar with this passage, or maybe you're already familiar with the first miracle of Jesus, and that is that Jesus turns water into wine. That's ultimately where we end up at. Jesus does a miracle, turns water into wine. But how it starts off with this announcement, they have no more wine. Now, again, I think it's very interesting. It is not by accident nor circumstance that Jesus announces his earthly ministry by doing a miracle. He officially ends his season in obscurity, he, he culminates his season of preparation not by preaching a sermon, not by holding a seminar, not by inviting people into doing a bunch of religious stuff. Jesus steps onto the scene in a big way by doing a miracle, he turns water into wine. And I also think that it's very interesting where this happens. It happens at a wedding. It happens at a wedding. Now, I know that whenever the Bible gets very detailed and very specific, it is for good reason that there are deeper truths that are trying to be communicated than what just lies on the surface. Jesus does a miracle, his first miracle, at a wedding. We need to understand that human nature has not changed much over the last few thousand years. A wedding in this day and time was as big of a deal as a wedding in this day and time, you ladies can remember the, the whole preparation and the process that went into your big day. I mean, some of you had been dreaming of that day your entire life. Ever since you were a little girl playing with Barbies, you were imagining what your wedding was going to be like, what it was going to look like. In fact, there are some even here today that are actually planning for their weddings, and it's a really big deal. There's so much dreaming. There's so much saving. There's so much execution that goes into a wedding. And I would say, and I've been a pastor now for many years, and I've done hundreds of weddings, I would say that for an event that is supposed to be marked by such great expression of love, and such memories, it is also the place where tensions are high Amen. and where expectations are the greatest. If you are engaged here today and you are 
going to be a groom. The best pastoral advice that I can give you is just to let her do whatever it is that she wants to do and you stay out of her way. And as a pastor, as a pastor, I, I, I actually follow my own advice because I am invited into this sacred space many, many, many times. And I have learned that it is best for me to just be as loving and encouraging and positive as I can possibly be while just remaining in the shadows of the background. And when it's time for me to do my thing, I'll do my thing as flawlessly as I possibly can because there is not a more fearsome creature on, a pla- on the planet than the bride's mother and then the bride. Tensions are high. Expectations are great. Man, weddings can be so incredible and so beautiful and so memorable. And man, they can also be very unique and filled with just so many unforgettable things. So much pressure as a pastor. So much pressure is on me. I feel so much pressure when I'm invited to do a a wedding because I know like so much time, so much money's gone into this. I can't, I can't mess up. Like I'm not going to be forgiven. There's going to be no grace. This is a no grace zone. I've got to execute flawlessly. And I think back on some of the weddings and some of the different things that I've experienced while officiating weddings One time while I was pastoring in Seattle, I was invited to do a scuba wedding. And the scuba wedding had two different parts to it. The the first part was I would stand with the bride and groom on the beach, on Alki Beach, which is beautiful, and the Seattle skyline is the backdrop, and we stood there on the beach and the, the bride and the groom in their scuba gear. And it was at that point that I would communicate verbally with them the vows and the expectations of what they were getting themselves into. Then the next level of the plan was we were going to then all don our scuba gear, go into the water, go down 20 or 30 feet, and then under the water as the air is coming out of our scuba equipment. We were going to there do hand gestures and communicate vows through underwater sign language that would seal this wedding forever. Well, first and foremost, I had, prior to this point, had never scuba dived before. And then secondly, I know nothing about sign language and underwater communication. And so I'm down there just desperately trying to not drown and then to make sure that I wasn't communicating something to them that would actually jinx them for the rest of their marriage. And then another time I I married a couple, the ceremony ended. I went to the celebration afterwards and and was on my way home when I received a phone call from the groom. And the groom said, Pastor, you know, thank you so much for everything. But I got a quick question for you. He said, have you already dropped in the official paperwork into the mailbox yet? 
because we've already gotten to a fight, and I just, I don't want to do this anymore. So if you could just not put it in the mailbox and have us be legally married, I would really appreciate it. And so I just said, well, let's do this. How about you just take a couple deep breaths? You guys try to just get through this little tension point, and then we'll talk tomorrow. And if you feel better about it tomorrow, then then I'll go ahead and drop the paperwork into the mail. You just never know what's going to happen at a wedding. But we know this. Then and now, tensions are high and expectations are great. And this is where Jesus does a miracle. And I got thinking about how relevant that is to just you and I and what we're facing right now in, in our own lives. Most of the places in our life, where we want and where we need a miracle are the places where we either have the greatest tensions or where we have the highest unmet expectations. That's generally where we're wanting and where we're looking for God to do a miracle in our life, where places are tense where we're believing, God, you've got to do a miracle because I just can't handle this any longer, or where we've got all these high unmet expectations. We, we know it should be like this up here, but yet we're somewhere down here, and we're like, do a miracle, God, to close the gap between where I'm wanting and where I'm thinking I should be and where this situation should be and where I'm actually at right now. And in this case... The tension and the unmet expectation was the wine was gone. Now, in, in, in Jewish custom and culture, particularly in this context, the wedding was a big deal, but the after party was a really big deal. Like receptions would last for days. And... They would drink wine and have a good time and dance and celebrate for days. And suddenly a problem arises that is a colossal faux pas that puts massive pressure on everyone involved with putting on this wedding reception. They've run out of wine. This would be like the most, the, the, the highest and most disrespectful thing that you could do to an invited guest. To bring them to your party and then they don't have wine to drink. Like we've run out of supplies. We're going to have to send them home early. How embarrassing. Oh, I just, I, I, I can't believe that we're facing this. And, and the people that were responsible were really in a situation where their back was to the wall. The Jewish people also during this time in history, they had this saying. And the saying was this. Where there is no wine, there is no joy. And so kind of two messages were, were being communicated into this situation. We're, we're in the, the most tense moment imaginable, and we don't have any joy. There's no wine. We've run out. There, there's, 
there's no more joy. So, so here, in John chapter number two, we have a situation where there are tensions, where there are unmet expectations, and where there is no joy. Anybody ever been there before? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Can anyone today even relate to that? You are somewhere right now in your life where there's a lot of tensions, unmet expectations, and no joy. Whenever you do get there, I promise you, it's going to feel like your world is absolutely falling apart. You are going to be more stressed and more anxious than ever before. Your blood pressure is going to rise and it is a terrible place to be when you feel like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know what's going to happen next. And when you get there, it is easy to focus on problems. And it's easy to focus on what's going on, just like what played out in John chapter number 2. The messaging was, there is no wine. That's the problem. We've got a lot of angry people. We've got a lot of stressed out, responsible parties, and there's no joy. And that is what we're focusing on. And that's what happens when we get to the point in our life where there are high tensions and, and a great gulf between uh, where we are and our expectations. It's in those moments that we want to focus on our feelings rather than our faith. And that's what we do in our life a lot of times. When we are needing a miracle and when we're desperate and when we're really feeling like God's got to move in our life, we make the mistake of focusing on feelings instead of faith. I'm stressed out. My back's to the wall. I don't know which way to turn. We, we toss and we turn through the night. We pace back and forth. We focus on feelings instead of faith. But this goes completely against to what we are supposed to be doing. Those of us that have surrendered our lives and the direction of our life and the control of our life to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says that we live by faith, not by sight. Our feelings are going to deceive us. Our feelings are going to always take us down a wrong path. Our feelings are going to always leave us kind of feeling more hopeless than what we really are. It's going to leave us feeling more abandoned than what we really are. So we've got to live by faith and not by sight. So then when you've got tensions and no joy and unmet expectations, and as you're focusing on feelings instead of faith, you know the next thing that happens is that we take matters into our own hands. Think about that. That's what we always tend to do in our life. When we are in a place where we need a miracle, where, where we're needing God to do something for us, when we get into places out of our control and God isn't doing what we want him to do or at the speed that we want him to do it, we take matters into our own hands. We, we, we try to just, just take back over. We try to take control. You know, it's easy to say, I trust God. 
And it's easy even for me to preach. You need to trust God. And it is something entirely different to actually trust God. In fact, the prophet Isaiah spoke to this in Isaiah 30 and verse number 15. This is so powerful. In fact, I think that this verse alone is going to wreck somebody here today and cause you to really rethink some of the things that you've been doing in your life. The, the, The prophet Isaiah speaking the word of the Lord says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. Repentance here is, is, is really the, the word in its truest form, a change of direction. That's what repenting means, is that you change your direction. You go a different way. In repentance, and in, in changing your direction, and rest is your salvation. In quietness and in trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Man, when I read that verse this week, I'm like, how in the world did the prophet Isaiah look down the road all that way and see my face? It's like, who gave the prophet Isaiah my picture? Like that man, when he wrote Isaiah 30, 15, had to be looking at my Facebook profile because he's like, look, in repentance and rest is your salvation and quietness and trust is your strength. Okay, I agree. Come on, preach it, preacher. But you would have none of it. Okay. My bad. Man, is there anyone else that struggles with that? You got problems all around you. You're lacking joy in your life. Unmet expectations. You got to have God move. But you're focusing on your feelings. You're trying to take matters in your own hands. The key, the key is to change direction, rest, be quiet, and trust but you would have none of it. But I love how it continues. We're not just left there. He goes on to let us know that our God, even when we're doing all of this, is still wanting to do a miracle in our life. He's still wanting to be gracious to us. Look at verse number 18, Isaiah 30, 18. So the Lord must wait for you to come to him so that he can show you his love and his compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for his help. And that's what plays out in John chapter number 2. The Lord waited on them to come to him so that he could do something about it. That's, that's what he was doing. He, in John chapter 2, they're... they're Focusing on their feelings. They're trying to take matters in their own hands. And here Jesus stands. Jesus. If anyone there knew his capability, it was his mother. She was the one that got an angelic visitation that said, you're going to name him Jesus. He's going to be the Savior. He's God with us. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. He comes from heaven. He's God. But even though she knows all this in her head, she's still focusing on her feelings, trying to take matters into her own hands when the miracle worker is standing right there just waiting on her to bring it to him. 
So what happens when we need a miracle in our life? We focus on our feelings. We try to take matters into our own hands. And here's something else we do. We exaggerate the negative. You ever do that? You ever get so overwhelmed where you start focusing in on everything that's negative and you believe that the negatives outweigh the positives? When in reality, it could just be that there's just a highly vocal little group of negatives, but they're trying to steal your attention and they're trying to distract you. So what do we do? We exaggerate the negative. My life is falling apart. The sky is falling down. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I think I'm going to eat some worms. Like, you know what I'm saying? We're exaggerating the negative. Everybody's against me. Who can I trust? Oh, man, look at all the bills. I don't know how it's going to be possible. And we start focusing on all of the negatives. But listen, we as the children of God, we've got to understand that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. We do not live with eyes that are to see the problems around us. We live with eyes that are to see the things that are not seen, which is a God that is in control and a God that is working and a God that is gracious and a God that is for us. And that's why 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for no matter how many promises, promises God has made. They are yes in Christ. You've just got to look at him. If there are a million no's in your life, look at Jesus. That is the one yes that eclipses all the no's and all the negativity and all the problems. And if you believe that, will you clap your hands and just thank God for that here today? Hey, put your eyes on Jesus. He's the one that works miracles in our life. So if you want a miracle and you need a miracle in your life, here's what you got to remember. We're seeing it here in John chapter number two. Verse number five, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. That's the first thing. This real Jesus, he works miracles. But if you want a miracle in your life, you've got to do what Jesus says to do. You cannot do what your feelings tell you to do. You cannot do what your BFF tells you to do. You've got to do what Jesus tells you to do. And a lot of times what he wants us to do when we're needing a miracle doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make sense. Why in the world, when we have no wine, is Jesus telling us to go and get a bunch of water? That doesn't make sense. I think one reason that we don't see more miracles in our life is because we're spending more time trying to figure out what it is he's going to do and how he's going to do it and why he's going to do it and try to make it all make sense for us instead of just trusting and believing for the miracle. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 says this about our God. God speaks here and says, this plan of mine is not what you would work out. Neither are my thoughts the same as yours. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than yours. 
Look, if you have to understand God, you're never going to get a miracle. He's just bigger than us. He's God. We are not God. In fact, if I could figure God out, if I could wrap my brain around every part of him and could explain the strategy and the details and the whys behind everything that he does, I wouldn't want to worship him. Why would we want to worship and adore something that we can figure out? While I am troubled at times by the mystery, I am in awe by the mystery, and it is the mystery that leads me to worship him. It is the mystery that at times is frustrating, but will still bring me to my knees and say, God, I am thankful that you're God and I'm not, and I don't know how or why you're going to do it. I'm just believing that you are going to do it. And if you're wanting God to do a miracle in your life, the second thing is you need to focus on what God wants to do in you. What God wants to do in you. And I've just got a few more moments, but I'm going to be honest with you. This, I think, is the toughest part of it all. And I, I, don't, I, I don't like this, and I, I wish it was different. But any time that you're looking for a miracle in your life, any time you're at that place, that junction of high tension, no joy, unmet expectations, any time you're looking for a miracle from God, you have to focus on what he's doing in you. And here's why. We want to focus on the problem. We want to focus on the situation. We want to focus on the dilemma but God has this other trait that, to be honest with you, I really don't like that much. And that other trait is God, he'll take a problem, and if he sees an opportunity to teach us something in the middle of it, he will. And how many of you know that in every situation that we face in our life, he can teach us something? But here's what happens. Because if he sees an opportunity to teach us something in the middle of what it is we're desperately wanting him to change, he will delay the answer. He will delay the miracle while he's working on the character issues that are going on on the inside of us because he's more concerned about what's going on inside of you than he is with all of that external stuff. And it's not that he doesn't care about you. He sees your tears and he knows your frustration and he sees that your back is against the wall. And it's not that he doesn't care about you. It's just the opposite. He is doing more in the miracle than what you realize. Because not only is he going to change the external, he's going to transform the internal. So I've come today to tell somebody that's waiting on a miracle, that's needing a miracle. And in this season where you're feeling like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, while you're waiting on God to answer your prayer, and while you're waiting on God to move, ask God this, what do you want me to learn? 
And what are you trying to do in me? What are you trying to do in me? And then, if you're wanting that miracle in your life, believe the unbelievable. Believe the unbelievable. And then, remember what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. Jesus looked at them and he said, With man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Believe for the unbelievable. And then last, expect the best. Expect the best. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Expect the best. I don't know how you arrived here today and what kind of emotional condition you were in or what kind of frame of mind that you have. But I just want to encourage you as we close here today, I want to encourage you to believe for the unbelievable. And I want you to expect the best. The best is yet to come. God is at work in your life. God is moving. God cares about you. He's going to do miracles. He's going to do supernatural things in our lives. And at the same time, he's going to be changing us. He's going to be working miracles in us. The last thing, and I think what is the most incredible thing about this, about the simultaneous miracles that took place. While everybody was waiting on one miracle, Jesus was in fact doing another. It says this in John chapter 2 and verse number 6. It says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus very deliberately chooses these great big ceramic pots that were symbolic of religion, that was symbolic of religious works. That was symbolic of ritualistic action. Jesus uses this symbol of all of those things to do his miracle. You see, here's what's interesting. All the wine that had already been drank would have come from wineskins. That's That's how they stored and served wine in that day. It was kept in a wineskin. And if they had drank all the wine, that would have meant in some back room somewhere, there would have been empty wineskins laying around all over the floor. And Jesus could have very easily said, wineskins be filled with wine and boom. The wineskins are filled with wine. 
I mean, after all, if this is the wedding where he's going to do his first miracle, that could have been the miracle. And I think that to us probably would make the most sense. But Jesus can do multiple, multiple miracles in us and for us while we're just focused singularly on the one miracle. Jesus says this miracle that's going to happen is going to be bigger and greater and more mind-blowing than what you can imagine because I'm going to do it like this. I want you to get six giant ceramic pots that are holding 30 gallons of water each. The ones that you use for your religious acts, your, your ritualistic things that you do when you clean yourself, your ceremonial cleansing, I want you to use that. Because here's the thing, when, when somebody would arrive to worship in that day and time or when they would arrive to a house, the religion, the religion taught them that they had to clean themselves. They had to wash in a very specific fashion. So they would go to these ceramic pots and they would dip their hands down into the water in a very specific way and would ceremoniously and ritualistically cleanse themselves. And and not only did they have to wash, but it had to be done in a very specific way or they had been taught God wasn't happy and that God wouldn't approve. The cleansing worked like this. If the water, as they were washing, if the water would just roll off of their fingers, then they would have to do it again. It didn't count. It wasn't good enough. The the water actually, as they washed, would have to run down their forearms and drip off of their elbows. And, And it was all about Jesus saying, I'm going to use what for you has been frustration, what for you has been a bunch of dead and empty religious rituals. I'm going to take that and I'm going to do something powerful with it. I'm going, to, I'm going to transform your symbol of dead religion and I'm going to fill it with joy. I'm going to put the wine into the very thing that's frustrated you, the very thing that's caused you to, to question God, the very thing that's just left you so, so empty and so separated, I'm going to fill that up with wine. I'm going to fill it up with joy. And that's working in one specific aspect, but he's doing other things in us and through us and for us that have such deeper meaning and have so much more powerful impact. Will you stand with me here today? And I think the greatest miracle, just like then, I think the greatest miracle that can happen in our life is when we awaken from dead, empty religion, just going through motions with God and doing things that sometimes just feel us, that leave us feeling just more frustrated, further from him, hopeless when that gets transformed into the joy of the Lord, when that gets transformed into the wine of his Holy Spirit where we can see and know that he is alive and he is in us and he is working through us and he 
is doing something on the inside of us. That's the greatest miracle I think that can happen in any of our lives is when we go from I only know him from this religious place to now I know him because his joy fills me up and his presence and power is working on the inside of me. 